0: Good morning, I am John Hattenberg, one of your elders here, and it's my pleasure to bring the Word of God to you this morning. We're finishing up this morning with our four-part series on the book of Hebrews, uh, we're covering the first four chapters, uh, which we've entitled, Jesus is Better. The book of Hebrews was written by someone, we don't know who, so I'll just refer to him as the writer, but it was written to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century who were undergoing some trials some difficulties, and uh, the purpose of the, of the letter was to encourage them in their walk and to tell them that Jesus is indeed better. And so, a few weeks ago, Ski talked about the first point from chapter 1, which is that Jesus brings a better word, and then we followed that up following week uh, in chapter 2, Jesus is a better messenger, a better messenger than angels, and then last week, uh, Carl covered the first part of chapter 3, in which he described that Jesus is a greater leader than Moses, And that brings us to the fourth and concluding section of this, Uh, we'll cover uh, part of chapter three and most of chapter four, where we find out that Jesus ushers in a better rest, a better rest, R-E-S-T. Now, the word rest for many of you will mean something slightly different. For some of you, the word rest will make you think about sleep or taking a nap, which I hope you won't do in a few minutes here. Also might make you think of a deserted island somewhere where you can go on vacation and get some rest. Uh, some of us would think of it as uh, something like a coffee break during the middle of our day where we take a rest from the work that we're doing, or if you're playing in sports or some kind of football or some other sports, we can think of rest as being a timeout. But all of those are, are roughly accurate. The Bible has this idea of rest and talks about freedom from work or activity. And the first time we encounter rest in the Bible is in the second chapter of Genesis, where we see that God took six days to create the world, and then he rested on the seventh day. He rested from the work that he had done. So God rested. He also commanded us as people to rest. And if you know your Ten Commandments well, you know that the fourth commandment is to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The word Sabbath is the Hebrew word for rest. And so uh, the idea is that we, like God, are intended to work for six days and then take a day of rest. And so we, we have that command also. So the idea of rest uh, has a past. In other words, it was rooted in the very foundation, the second chapter of, of our Bible in Genesis in the creation story. It has a present in the sense that we as, as followers of, of, of Jesus are, are directed to rest, work six days, take a day off. It also has a, a future uh, tense to it, a future idea of a future rest. And that idea of a future rest is clearly stated in our Bibles. And it's all about the end times. That is the climax of history. Climax of all of God's plan when Jesus comes back to earth. And many things take place at that. But one of the things that takes place is all those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior will be then conformed to the image of Jesus. We will be clothed with new bodies. New glorious bodies our perfect bodies without any blemish or defects. And we will come and we will live in the very presence of, Of God in a new heaven and a new earth forever. And in that sense, we get to dwell in and enjoy in God's rest. And so that future rest is what we look forward to. Now that future rest is symbolically expressed in a story in the Old Testament where God led the Israelites out of Egypt and he led them into the promised land where he said that he would give them rest. Rest in the promised land in a land flowing with milk and honey. We'll come back to that story in just a minute because it forms the foundation of this section of of the book of Hebrews. The future divine rest that we're talking about at the end times when Jesus returns is a lot better. It's a lot better than the rest that we have on a day like today where we have a Sabbath rest. It's better than the rest that the Israelites had when they entered into the promised land. In fact, it's better than anything we can imagine. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 is all about this future divine rest and uses the word rest uh, several times in, in, this, in this section of Scripture. Now, to understand the background to this, I think it's useful to go back in history and recreate a little bit of, of, of the foundation that the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about. So, back, way back in Genesis, in chapter 12, God appeared to a guy named Abraham and he promised him a couple things. One, he said, we'll, I will grow you into a great, large nation. And secondly, I will lead you into this promised land in the land of Canaan. Now, fast forward about 600 years, and a bunch of things happened. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two boys named uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name got changed from Jacob to Israel. And so his descendants are called the Israelites, which is where we get that word. And over time, uh, they grew into a large nation. Then they went to Egypt. All the Israelites went to Egypt with Jacob. Why did they do that? Because there was a famine in the land. There was food in Egypt. And they went there to eat to survive. But once they were there, they stayed. And so they settled down in the land of Egypt, and they kept growing. They kept multiplying uh, in in number. And so that was a good thing. But they got to be so large that the Egyptians got tired of them. They hated them. And so they turned them into slaves. They forced them into slavery, and it was a bad time for the Israelite nation. God had fulfilled one of his promises that they would become a large nation, and there were many of them at the time, but they were in Egypt, not in the promised land. And so they suffered. It was a bad time for the Israelites. They suffered. There were slaves And they cried out to God. And God commanded a guy named Moses. Moses' primary job was to lead the people out of Egypt. And so he did. He took them out of Egypt led them through the Red Sea. The Red Sea collapsed over the Egyptian army. And and they were free. And they they wandered into the desert, ready to head into the Promised Land. It was a great moment in history. The long-awaited-for return of the Israelite nation, the big nation of Israel, to march into the Promised Land was a momentous moment in history. And God referred to that entry, their entry, into the promised land as rest. We see this very clearly in the book of Deuteronomy. We'll turn there very, very briefly. We'll spend most of our time in Hebrews, but I just wanted to give you the background of this. Hebrews, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, this is Moses now speaking to the Israelite nation on the brink of, of, of hopefully, moving into the, land, uh, the promised land. He says this, he says, For you, he's talking now to the Israelites, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you may live in safety, and then he goes on and explains to them what it is that they should do in regards to sacrifices. So you can see this idea of rest, that God had promised the Israelites that they would move into this land, and they would rest there from their enemies, and enjoy themselves in a wonderful land. And all was good. They were free from the Egyptian slavery. They had left the Egyptian army uh, drowned in, in the Red Sea. Uh, they were all together as, as a nation. Moses was leading them. God was literally with them at this time, literally in the sense that he appeared to them in a, in a cloud during the day, in a pillar of fire at night. And so he was leading them, and they were free, and they were all together. They were worshiping God, and they were mo- about ready to move into this land that God had promised to Abraham 600 years earlier. And all was pretty good. But then things went badly wrong. They sent 12 spies into the land to check it out. There's nothing wrong with that. It was a good idea. The spies came back, however, with two observations. One observation was that the land was indeed very good. It was a beautiful land. It was very prosperous. It was fertile. A lot of crops grew there. Large clusters of grapes they brought back and demonstrated that indeed the promised land that God had promised to them was indeed a good land. The second report was not so good. The second report was, oh, by the way, the land is already occupied. It's occupied by a whole bunch of people who look quite fierce and strong. They have large armies with horses and chariots. And frankly, we saw eight-foot and nine-foot giants there also. They look like a strong and difficult people to overcome. And so what did the Israelites do? Well, they panicked. They were afraid to go in. God had promised that he would fight for them and conquer these people, but the Israelites, when they were faced with the visual uh, picture that they had of these people, including these giants, were frightened. And they didn't believe God's promise. And so they rebelled. They went to Moses and they said, Hey, Moses, uh, we ain't going in there. We're going to get slaughtered. In fact, they suggested that they find themselves a new leader and head back to Egypt. Well, God, of course, wasn't pleased with that. God was quite angry. And so he told them that they would march around for the next 40 years. And this entire generation of Israelite adults, 20 years and older, would march around until they were all dead. All the adults, 20 years and older, would march for 40 years in the desert until they were dead. And then God would bring the next generation of Israelites who had not disobeyed into the Promised Land. And so that's exactly what happened. For 40 years they marched around the desert, and one by one, all the adult Israelites of that generation who had rebelled fell dead, buried in the sand, and only 40 years later was Joshua and Caleb able to bring them, the next generation of Israelites into the promised land and they entered into the promised rest that God had promised for them. but because of their unbelief, an entire generation entire generation of Israelites were not allowed to enter into the promised land and enjoy the rest that God had promised for them there. Now, the writer of Hebrews uses this story about the disobedient Israelites to make an important point about God's future rest. Now, Hebrews 3 and 4, we're just going to look at in a second, is a long section of Scripture, and frankly, it's a little confusing. I say that because it was confusing to me, and I spent at least 20 hours reviewing it in preparation for my sermon this morning. So let me just give you a short summary, a five-point summary of what chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews is about. First point is that the Israelites didn't believe God's promises. The second point is that they missed out on the rest of the promised land. Third point is, don't do that. The fourth point is, Jesus offers a future better rest. And the fifth point is, trust in Jesus so you don't miss out on that future better rest. So what I want to do now is, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 3, we'll cover good portion of that most of chapter 4 or you can follow it on the screen. It's a lot of verses and so I need you to sort of, sort of buckle down for just a second because we're going to work through the section of scripture. We'll, we'll blow through it all at once. I'll stop occasionally to explain what I think it means uh, but we're going to run through that and then I'll come back afterward and we'll pick up the key messages from this section. Okay? So turn to Hebrews chapter 3 starting in verse 7 we see this word therefore. Therefore refers back to the earlier section of chapter 3 that Carl talked about last week. The point that the writer had made previous to this this, uh, this word, therefore, is that the, writer, the readers should consider Jesus. The writer says, consider Jesus. Jesus is a greater leader than Moses. He's greater than Moses. Consider Jesus. And so, therefore, he says, therefore, because Jesus is greater than Moses, do this. And then what he does is he, he quotes from a psalm of David, from Psalm 95. David wrote Psalm 95 about 400 years after the Israelites refused to go into the land of Canaan. And so this is after the succeeding generation had entered the land of Canaan into the promised land. So he's writing this, and it's a prophecy. And he says, basically, today, that is in David's time, and today, as we sit here today, 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 if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts like those guys did. Okay? So let's pick it up in uh, verse uh, chapter 3 and verse 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, this is David writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, therefore, this is now a quote from Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his, that is God's voice, do not harden your hearts. That's a phrase you're going to hear three more times in this whole section of Scripture. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked, God speaking here, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And there's the end of the the quote from the uh, Psalm 95. So the writer is, is warning his readers and us not to follow the example of the disobedient Israelites. Today, don't harden your hearts. Have a soft heart for Jesus. All right, let's continue. Verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. All right, so next the writer says that the disobedient Israelites who rebelled didn't enter the promised land. Why? Why didn't they enter? The writer's going to tell us, says they did not Because they did not believe. It was unbelief that caused them to be unable to enter. So we pick that up in verse 16. He says, For, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Talking now about the Israelites. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Yeah. And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yes. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Yes. And then he concludes in verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The Israelites rebelled, and they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. We'll come back and talk about what that means in a minute. Now, we're going to carry on in chapter 4, recognizing that the chapter breaks were only added much later. The writer of Hebrews didn't put these in. These were just for our benefit, so the, the, the thought continues. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... "...let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it." That has failed to reach that rest. "...for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened." So the writer says that there is this future rest that we can enter into. And the promise of this future rest still stands. In other words, the invitation is still open, still today for us to enter into that future rest. And he tells us how we get there. He talks about the good news. For those of us who are well-versed in our Bibles, we know that the good news means the gospel. The good news is very simple. There's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is that when we sin, we cannot enter enter into heaven. God can have nothing to do with sin. And so we cannot enter into that, that better future rest that we talked about. The good news is that Jesus came to earth to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So when we believe in Jesus... All of our sins are canceled, and we can enter into that better rest in the future. Now, let's slide down to verse 8. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now here we see this future better rest that's on offer is better than the rest that the Israelites experienced. Joshua led that second generation into the promised land, and if, it, if that had been the best that ever God, then why would God refer to another future rest? Well, he refers to another future rest because it's better than the one that Joshua did. And he refers it here to the Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is the same future better rest that Jesus offers to us. And then the writer ends his argument with an exhortation. It's an exhortation to his Jewish readers and to us. Don't be disobedient like those Israelites were when God wanted to lead them into the promised land. And so in verse 11, we see, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that is the future rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, the same sort of disobedience as those Israelites who rebelled. So the writer's argument is pretty straightforward. Thank you for slogging through that with me. Okay? The writer's argument is pretty straightforward. It's kind of two points. One is that God offered the Israelites a rest in the promised land, but because of unbelief, they didn't enter it and they missed out. Today, God offers a future better rest through belief in Jesus, and we should be wise not to follow the example of the disobedient Israelites. Now, I want to take just a second to talk about that future rest in a bit more detail. What, what, what is it like? What is that future rest that we have to look forward to like? Well, I've already said that it happens in the end times when Jesus returns. And all those who trusted in Jesus then get a new glorified body and we get to go to live in the very presence of God forever in a new heaven and a new earth. What is it like? Well, it's very clearly described in Revelation 21. And we'll go there for just a second. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, it describes what this new heaven and new earth will be like, what this experience would be for this this uh, this better future rest. Uh, Gospel, uh, the uh, prophet John is talking here. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's a beautiful place. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. God will dwell with man. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so this picture of this future rest is a beautiful, wonderful thing. It is the fulfillment of the ultimate longing of our souls. All those who have trusted in Jesus look forward to that day as our great hope. It's talked about so many times in our Bibles. That great hope of that day won't be in the physical presence of God and live there forever in a perfect place. There we'll have freedom from sin. And because we're free from sin, we'll also be free from the effects of sin. There won't be any, any sorrow. There won't be any pain. There won't be any persecution or frustration. There won't be any injustice. There won't be any death the wonderful and beautiful place. Now, how do we enter into this future rest? Well, we know from the rest of Scripture that we enter by faith in Jesus, and that's all. So the writer of Hebrews has some important advice about this rest, and what I wanted to do now is go back and pick out a few of the messages that the writer of Hebrews has for us, because if we simply took that idea and didn't pay heed to his advice, we'd miss a good portion of what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know. And so we'll go back and we'll see that the, the, the writer cautions us uh, several times not to do what the Israelites did. Not to do what the Israelites did. They missed out on the promised land. How did they miss out on the promised land? We, we saw this before. They missed out on the promised land because of unbelief. I see that in two places in this section of Scripture. Hebrews 3.12 says it first. He says, Take care, brothers. This is advice he's giving now to Christians, including us today. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. There's that idea of unbelief. It's an unbelieving heart. Something that takes place inside. And then sliding down to verse 19 in the same chapter, Hebrews 3.19 says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So, the main point that the writer wants to say in regards to this is protect your heart from unbelief. Protect your heart from unbelief. Don't do what the Israelites did. Protect your heart from unbelief. Now, I happen to know that when most of you hear me say that, many of you are switching off. By that I mean, you hear this unbelief and you say, well, that doesn't apply to me. He must be talking to unbelievers because I believe in Jesus. I've trusted in Jesus and therefore he's not talking to me. But wait. Who is the writer of Hebrews writing to? Is he writing to Christians or to non-Christians? Well, you know he's writing to Christians. In fact, he's very clear on. In fact, in, in, in chapter three, at the beginning, verse one, he says, "calls them holy brothers." He addresses them as holy brothers, and even in this verse, uh, verse twelve, in chapter three, he says, he starts it out. He says, "Take care, brothers," and we know this word "brothers" refers to Christians. And so we have this small conundrum I think where we read this and we go wait a minute he's writing to Christians why does the writer caution Christians to protect your heart against unbelief well I think we have to go back and define what the word unbelief means here in this case what is he referring to is he he suggesting that guard your hearts against not believing in God is he worried that we're going to suddenly become atheists and believe that God doesn't exist I don't think so I think what he's saying is that he, he, be, be guard, guard your heart against, against believing that God won't do as he promised. It's the unbelief in the promises of God. The reason I think that is because we see the example in the, in the case of the Israelites themselves. We see this unbelief in the Israelites. The Israelites believed in God. They must have believed in God. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground while this wall of water is standing on either side of them. You've got to believe a God exists when you're standing there in the middle of that sea. And when you get to the other side, the sea rolls back on top of the Egyptian army. You see this with your own eyes. You believe there is a God. You get up in the morning, there's man on the ground every morning. You go out and you gather and you eat it. And you've got to believe that there's a God. You see the, the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day and you see... God is here with us, and so you believe in God. So it wasn't an issue that they didn't believe in God. The problem was that when the spies came back and they said, hey, big people, big armies, giants. That's when the unbelief set in. And what happened was they no longer believed that God was going to fulfill the promise that he had given them. And the promise that he would fight the battles for them, and they would be victorious over these other armies. And so they saw this, they saw the chariots and they heard about the people and the giants seven and eight feet tall and doubt set in and unbelief took over. And they did not believe that God would protect them from these people. They didn't believe that God would fight and win the battles for them. They didn't believe that God would do what he promised to do. Why? Because in their case, their faith wasn't strong enough to work them through the visual picture of of these armies and these people that they had to conquer. So, how does this kind of unbelief work its way into the hearts of Christians today? Is it possible for believing Christians to not believe that Jesus will deliver what he has promised? Is it possible for believing Christians today to not believe that Jesus' death on the cross will pay the penalty for all their sins. Is it possible today for believing Christians to not believe that Jesus will usher them into a future better rest when they die? The answer is yes. Yes, it is possible. It's possible that the faith of believing Christians is so weak that when difficulty arises, doubt sets in, unbelief takes hold, And they stop believing the promises of God. Now, we see this. You know people like this, and so do I. In fact, you may be sitting here this morning, and you're one of them. A lot of Christians start out with a good start. They hear the gospel message, and they say, Wow, that is good news. I don't want to go to hell. I want to trust in Jesus. And so they do. They trust in Jesus and make a declaration, I believe in Jesus. But then, a day or a week or a month or maybe a year or maybe 10 years goes by and they run into some trouble, some stress, some kind of a problem. Maybe they lose their job or maybe they go into debt or maybe their marriage crumbles or maybe a child dies. Or maybe they get cancer, or maybe they just get depressed. Any number of things can stress us out, and and then doubt sets in. And if doubt goes too far, suddenly, over time, unbelief takes hold. And the promises of God that they first understood and believed, they no longer believe them. Now, this condition almost always leads to disobedience and to major sin. And so people that you have experienced, as I have experienced, oftentimes what happens is the first thing, they stop coming to church, they stop hanging out with other Christians, they stop worshiping, they stop reading their Bible, they stop praying. They fall into serious sin. So what happens to a man like that? What happens to a man like that? Will he go to heaven? Will he be able to enjoy the future better rest that we've been talking about? Or will he fail, will he not go there? I don't know. I know this, that the way to enter that future heavenly rest, the way to go to heaven is to trust in Jesus, sincerely, genuinely. We are all saved by faith, not by works. And so, it depends on whether this man's faith was real or fake. Whether his faith was sincere, and genuine, or whether he was deceived into thinking he had trusted in Jesus when, in fact, he had not. And because that's a matter of the heart, a matter of his heart with God, it's not something I can judge from the outside. Now, maybe his belief in Jesus was sincere and genuine. That is, he was a true believer. And if so, God will welcome him into the future, better rest in heaven. If, on the other hand, his belief was a false Belief, it was a sham, it was a show. Perhaps he walked down the aisle because there were a bunch of other people doing it or his wife pressured him into doing it. Or he just said, well, what have I got to lose? Why don't I trust in Jesus? But it wasn't a sincere belief in Jesus. In his case, he thinks he's trusted in Jesus, but he's deceived. He never committed to do so. No, he won't go to heaven. There are a lot of people in churches who think that they're going to heaven and they're not. I know this from statistics, and I know it from Scripture. George Barner runs a research organization that does a lot of research around Christian things about church. He runs this survey periodically, and every time it comes back, almost exactly the same. Sixty-five percent of Americans believe they will go to heaven. Guess what percentage of them believe they will go to hell? 0.5%. 65% believe they're going to heaven. Less than 1% believe they're going to hell. The others don't know. But I know those statistics can't be right. Because they don't jive with what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a very chilling story. He tells a very chilling thing, a very scary thing. In, In verse 13 and 14, he says, he's talking about going to heaven. He says, enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate. It says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, that is to hell. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, to eternal life to heaven. And those who find it are few. So this narrow gate that leads to heaven is only followed by a few. In my estimation, few means a minority. It doesn't mean 65%. And he goes on to say in in verse 21, another scary spot. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that is on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And there will be many people surprised and disappointed on that day if they're not entering into heaven. Now, I'm sure the churches in the first century, in the Hebrew churches that this writer is writing to, were not much different, really, than American churches, and probably not much different than the Bible Church. We ought not to be so proud that we would think that we're any different than other churches in America. Churches in America, including this one, are filled with people who claim to believe in Jesus. They know all the right answers to all the right gospel questions. And some of them are true believers, and others of them are false believers. And many of those false believers don't even realize that they're false believers. They think they're saved and they're not. And they won't find out until they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But it's really hard for us to tell the difference. We can ask them all the right gospel questions and if they give us all the right gospel answers, we might think that they're saved. But again, it's a hard issue between them and God and it's difficult for us to tell. So, back to this idea of unbelief. What happens when unbelief, that is, unbelief in the promises of Jesus... What happens when unbelief in the promises of Jesus sets in for a true believer? Well, usually what happens is they disobey, they fall into serious sin, and they wreck their lives, at least for a period of time. But since their faith is sincere, they will go to heaven when they die. What happens when unbelief in the promises of Jesus sets in for a false believer? Well, typically they disobey, they fall into serious sin, and it messes up their life for a long period of time. And when they die, because their faith in Jesus is false, they will not go to heaven. That's what Scripture says. But in either case, it's important to protect your heart from unbelief. and It's why, it's why the writer says, protect your heart from unbelief. Because it's possible for any Christian to doubt And when difficult times come into their lives, it's easy for us to get sucked into that. And over time, that can lead to unbelief in the promises of God. And it'll have disastrous effects. It'll mess up your life in a major way. That's why the writer of Hebrews warns us, protect your heart against unbelief. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, oh, that sounds terrible. Well, it is terrible. But don't despair. If you are in this position today, or if you know a loved one that is in this position today, do not despair. Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And Jesus' forgiveness is infinitely wide. He wants every person to trust in Jesus and to come to Him. And if that person who has who has gone down this path has first doubted and then fallen into the trap of unbelief, if he can repent, if he can rethink and go back to Jesus, Jesus will grab him with both arms and welcome him back into the kingdom of heaven. But the writer is very clear that it's a danger. It's why he says, protect your heart from unbelief. And so does he leave us with nothing to do? No, he gives us two good ideas, two good applications of how to prevent our hearts from falling into unbelief. And I just want to cover that quickly and then we'll close. Two applications. How do I protect my heart from unbelief? First thing is, he says, exhort one another. We see that in verse 13 of chapter 3. It says very clearly, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. That word exhort means to encourage or challenge or urge one another on. Carl talked about this last week. We are intended to live in community. We're intended to live in relationships. This is all about discipleship, which we talk about over and over again. Whether it's one-on-one or in a small group, we can't do this alone. We're intended to come alongside one another and encourage one another, build each other up and hold each other accountable and study the word together and live our lives in community and together. And that's the way we can do it. It's not intended to be a lone ranger experience. That's a dangerous place to be a lone ranger. You need the encouragement of other believers need the encouragement of an older guy, an older one building into your life. And you've got the obligation to to do the same with someone who is further behind in their spiritual walk. We have to do that together. And then the second way he tells us to to protect our hearts from unbelief, he says this, he says let the Bible, let the word of God slice your heart to ribbons. That's my non-literal interpretation of verse 12, which we haven't even talked about yet. Hebrews chapter four and verse twelve, the kind of ending of this section that we're talking about. He says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, the Bible, is like a sword, a sharp one, with two edges on it. When it slashes this way, it cuts, and when it slashes that way, it cuts. And when you read it supernaturally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God will speak to your heart. And it will slice and carve away all the falseness that's in there. It will slice and carve away your bad attitudes about things and the motivations that you have. And if you will just read it and allow the Holy Spirit to work through that, to slice your heart to ribbons, your heart will not be hard. And you're not going to fall into this position of doubt, and you're not going to slide into that spot that they call unbelief. So those are the two applications. One, exhort one another. Come alongside other people. We can't do this alone. Two, read your Bibles. Let the Holy Spirit slice you to ribbons. So there. Jesus offers us a future better rest. Jesus is better because he ushers in a better rest. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't be like the Israelites. Trust in Jesus. Protect your heart against unbelief in the promises of God. And we look forward to the day when Jesus returns and calls us to that better rest in the future. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for the book of Hebrews. We're thankful, Lord God, that you send Jesus. Jesus is indeed better. We thank you for sending him to die for us so that whoever believes in him will be saved. We look forward to, Lord God, we long for the day in eager anticipation when Jesus returns, when we will enter into that beautiful, glorious, future, better rest to dwell in your presence forever in a new heaven and a new earth in glorified, perfect bodies where we will be free from all sin and from sorrow and from pain, free from suffering and persecution, free from frustration, injustice, and death. Lord God, help us to protect our hearts against unbelief. Let us be diligent to disciple one another. Help us to strive to read your word and allow it to slice our hearts to ribbons for your glory and for your honor. Lord God, we pray all these things in the powerful and precious name, your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.